This episode was recorded on September 6th, 2020. Our topic for this week, European Technology, Part 2. What is our news of the week, Michael? You have some uh, interesting tidbits for us. Yes, our news of the week this week is quite Apple-centric. So we got two stories from the news of the week this week. One is that Apple has opened up a little bit more about their stance and their policies with uh, the new Beijing and Hong Kong privacy rules. So for a little bit of reference, on July 1st, Beijing published some new rules in terms of how they handle private data. Basically, this allows them to to go and collect data from the Hong Kongese authorities when they request it from folks. So a bunch, when this happened, a bunch of different uh, companies, I believe we covered this, a bunch of different companies, Microsoft, uh, Twitter, and Google, uh, who all operate in Hong Kong said, hey, we are going to stop collecting user information in, in those countries or in Hong Kong. Therefore, if the Hong Kong government requests of us, there's nothing for them to collect. And then further, if the Beijing government collects that from the Hong Kong government, there'll be nothing for them to collect. We, we want safety, quote unquote. Absent from that list, starting from day one, was Apple. Apple never said this. Apple, by the by, of, that, of the companies that we just mentioned, has, I would say, the largest reliance on the Chinese economy, if you will, or the Chinese government, or the Chinese people, or however you would like to see it. Said nothing about adhering to this policy. Made no changes about adhering to this policy. And people have given them an eye for that one for the past few months now. So they opened up a little bit this week. And gave a little bit more information in terms of how they're treating, how they're handling this. And it, it sounds like them giving, what's the word I'm looking for? The, the tone and tenure of their description sounds like someone who is justifying a decision. So they say, for example, one, well, the data is stored in US servers, so we can determine what to, uh, what to give and what not. And, and this also means the Beijing government can't just go and seize our data because it's in U.S. servers. True. Um, but then further, they say, well, as well, they release the data for how many requests of services they get from different authorities. And apparently, the amount of uh, requests that they get from U.S. authorities is somewhere around tenfold the number of requests that they get from Hong Kongese authorities. So, John, what do you think about this? I mean, this, uh, what do you think about Apple's, I mean, it sounds like justifying, justifying their decision. Yeah, man. At the end of the day, these uh, entities, if you will, are in the religion of money mm. and protecting <clears throat> the, the, the flow that brings in more money, which means they have to, you know, uh, dance a delicate dance, uh, making sure they don't annoy anyone too much uh, to, to, uh, so that, you know, they don't kill the, the golden goose. Mm. At the end of the day, that's their interest, right? Because it, if, if they go against one or the other and then they lose out on that marketplace, you know, that hurts them. Also, my, also mind you, just in recent times, Thursday, Friday fluctuated this a little bit, but Apple became the first $2 trillion company in the U.S. exchange. Yep. I think they were saying Amazon might get there first, but... You know, clearly yeah, Apple's on a tear. Mm-hmm. So, 
Yeah, no, I, it's, it's, it's not really surprising if you know what these companies' priorities are, right? And these companies' priorities are, how do we continue to grow our market share, expand our services, and make sure that our devices and services are desirable by as many people as possible? Mm -hmm. What does that entail? That means we don't jump into any politic as long as it doesn't quite affect us, right? They'll, so you'll see them standing up in like different regional things, right? So the immigration thing, uh, when workers were being, you know, the H-1B ban and stuff, like, you know, obviously they'll come around and say, hey, we need this because that's part of their lifeblood, right? They're always right. hiring uh, talent and some of the talent is international. Um, but in other things that maybe you would wish they'd do more, right? Uh, they're not going to if it's not in their interest. Yeah. Yeah, let's uh, let's move on to our next story, which is also Apple centric. We're gonna we're gonna stick in Apple. So, Apple has Apple has announced this week that they are delaying the mobile ads apocalypse, as the tech media has has aimed to called it. So, for those catching up, we've talked about this a little bit briefly in the past. Apple's decided that they want to take the lead on privacy, one of the areas that they want to take the lead on because they don't have a horse in this race. Apple has decided that they are going to limit the amount of information that mobile advertisers can get from their platform. Specifically, uh, they're going to take away a lot of the individual impressions and conversions and activities that advertisers have depended on for a long period of time. And kind of in iOS 14, which is supposed to come out sometime in the next few weeks, or at least be announced in the next few weeks, that was their plan, which was like, hey, it's going to hit. And then all apps will no longer, well, users will have to opt themselves in uh, into different apps to send data to, uh, to advertising platforms such as Google and Facebook. The news that Apple is now not going to release it this year, but they're going to release it next year is a bit of a reprieve. And I'm sure going to uh, impact a lot of the different uh, what's it called projections people have for facebook and google revenue this year as well so yeah apple pumping the brakes a bit on leading the world in privacy why is apple delaying is the, my question is this their way of pushing that decision to next year are they not as committed to it is this like was this a threat like what is the, what is the story here baseless so baseless podcaster host speculation time uh, in terms of the, the following speculations based on no insider information from Apple or any other company. Hey, I thought that's what we did on a weekly basis. Why are you announcing this now? Baseless, baseless podcast host speculation. All right. Apple has their current legal battles with Epic right now, right? <laughs> yes. And they have the spotlight from the, the recent Congress, uh, the recent congressional hearings. And Microsoft... <laughs> backed Epic against Apple. Facebook is now going against Apple because of this situation. Is it just that Apple's looking out at all the battles it's fighting and saying, we're at war in too many fronts? You know, we don't want to be Germany and uh, we don't want to be Germany and declare war on Russia while the UK and the US are coming in to this war. Yeah. 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 So I, yeah, I really wonder their action, I wonder if this is just the start of them slowly kind of calling what they've initially announced. Or maybe not. Maybe it's just their way of waiting until, as you said, right, uh, things are calmer and then they can push that agenda. So if Facebook is like, all right, screw it. I'm out of iOS, right? Of course, we know it's so unlikely to happen. But if Facebook pulled all of their apps out of iOS because they were like, well, we can't, you know, you know, not to say they can't monetize, but they were like, we can't monetize. We're out. We don't want to deal with this. It's not fair. They pulled out. At what point does an Apple 
I and then more and more apps start pulling out because of this and other situations like we've detailed all the past, right? Um, at what point does the iPhone start losing its inherent value because there are less and less apps that you desire to be on there potentially, so see, right? If you so took you see that, that's why I think Apple's pulling back because they're fighting too many wars. Because if Facebook pulls out, it's not enough. Now, Facebook can call itself WhatsApp and IG. And then it's WhatsApp. No, no, I said that. WhatsApp, IG, and Facebook. Oh, right, right, right. And Messenger. But what well, I was about to say, but if you if you're now let's think about the people that Apple is fighting with. You're now fighting the game space. Well, that's Microsoft and Epic. And NVIDIA has a stake in this with uh, with GeForce Go, which I just tried out this week. It's, it's pretty cool. Um, with all of these other, and Google has a stake in this with Stadia. Okay, now you're fighting that war. And what else are you fighting? <clears throat> well, if you add to that, uh, if you add to that the privacy element, well, Snapchat runs ads, and so does all of these other mobile ads platforms. Okay, right. now they make there's money. another conglomerate. And then you have the American government on top of that with these different privacy and these different expectations. You're fighting too much at once, at one time. So which one can you, which one can you drop? Well, you can't drop a lawsuit because that one's too important. The game side is too important, too much money involved. Privacy side, it's just reputation. It's purely just reputation. You can stall that one. And so that way you don't get it all at once. You don't anger all of the people at once because only at once are all of these companies a threat to Apple. All right. On to the main event, Michael. What is our topic for today? All right. So this is our second week. This is our final week in Europe on our world tour. So last week we looked at the largest technological companies in Europe or the largest technology companies in Europe just by market cap alone. This week, we want to talk about the startup scene in Europe, go the other way about it. So we're going to talk about the startup scene in general, but then we're going to focus on the few really interesting geographical areas that are doing some cool things right now. Uh, some areas that fame themselves the next Silicon Valley, if you will. We'll talk about how they got their start. We'll talk about what are some of the companies that are based out of that area. And we'll talk about really are they the next Silicon Valley. But before then, Johnny, you did a little more research on the overall European tech scene or the European startup scene. Why don't we start with uh, your research there? Yes. There's a great article I came across from Quartz. You're going to have that in the, in the show notes. It was from, I think, December. It was talking about how the next Silicon Valley is in Europe. Uh, so some of the takeaways is that, you know, up till now, London, Berlin, and Paris have accounted for the majority of, you know, venture capital investment across Europe, even up till recently. And they're, of course, home to many of the tech sector's biggest names, including their home to the most stable and largest uh, economies in Europe. Exactly. Tra including TransferWise, Delivery Hero, Blah Blah Car. So we already see, you know, FinTech, Delivery, uh, Ride Sharing. Is Blah Blah Car French? Probably. <laughs> yeah. Blah Blah Car. Yep, it's a French online marketplace for carpooling. Okay, figured as much. Where else? And it was founded in 2006, which might actually be earlier than Uber. Anyways, so London's $25 billion companies are reportedly worth a cumulative $60 billion. Mind you, this is probably from late last year, around December. Uh, but the big 
one of the themes that this article was was talking about is that yes you have these big three london berlin and paris that have been big and continue to be big but vc funding is expanding to other places so in 2018 the biggest increases in vc funding were actually in spain italy belgium and denmark and in 2018 the of the five largest european ipos four actually came from non-hub cities some of these we already covered spotify from stockholm Adyen from Amsterdam and Avis Software from Prague. So we have music. Adyen was, I believe, a semiconductor. Uh, no, no. services. No, it was services. services. It was payment services. IT, payment services. Was, yes, payment services. And payment then, services. And then Avis Software was um, security. Uh, yes, cybersecurity. Um, so uh, one of the big misconceptions is that everyone kind of looks at Europe and you know, uh, in the context of tech and high tech, they think it's one big uh, marketplace, but it's really not. It's actually home to at least 30 well, different Europe hubs. is not one country? No. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It could be. It could be, but it's not. There's many different cultures. Huh. Um, but, but it has. It has at least 30 different tech hubs. And the other interesting thing is that it's increasingly having more entrepreneur-friendly regulation, right? They're trying to encourage more entrepreneurship, less red tape, so that they can startups can hit the ground running. It has over 700 startup accelerators. And then earlier this year, in February, EU actually unveiled, unveiled plans to create a single market for their data across you know, the entire EU. So this is in order to help uh, its companies compete on the next round of tech innovations and curb the power of data giants such as Facebook and Google. Uh, the other, some quick stats is that there's, there were 99 unicorn companies in 2019 versus 22 companies in 2012. There was a 40% increase in VC funding in 2019 alone. And the other one, other interesting takeaway is that more and more American-based uh, VCs are actually coming to Europe. So Sequoia opened a London office, I think, earlier this year. And so 2019 was a banner year. They had a record year for fundraising. Uh, they raised over $34 billion, European startups. And in terms of percentage of investment involved in a Silicon Valley venture firm, uh, 2013 was 3%, 2018 was 7%, and 2019 was 19%. So there's a couple of themes going on here why US-based company, uh, based uh, VCs are actually going over to Europe for investments or opening offices. So there is this feeling that investments in the U.S. are actually extremely overpriced with much you higher say. valuations <laughs> and companies requiring more, found, more rounds of funding. How much was WeWork evaluated at? Uh, $46 billion. They were trying to push it up to like $100. Um, but not only just that, it's not just, hey, there's, there's obviously my money can go further. It's also that Europe has grown up with higher quality startups in the, over the past decade. Notable startups, some of them obviously we mentioned already, Spotify, King, Candy Crush, Takeaway.com. It's at the beginning of its bubble, not the, not the uh, peak of it. Right. Uh, Sky, Skyscanner, which I think is in the um, travel, uh, Adyen, and then of course DeepMind, which, uh, you know, AlphaGo and was acquired by Google. Um, and then of course, in 2019, European venture capital firms raised some really big funds. Uh, most in the five, four, 400, 500 million dollars, 600 uh, million euros. So there's a lot of activity. We don't actually have any quite up, there's not quite the latest with uh, the pandemic, but 
I don't see any reason why this would completely slow down mm -hmm. uh, in the long run. So Especially since Europe is handling the pandemic better than the United States. Oh, yeah. I, I talked to, to, to my family and they're like, yeah, everybody's out and about wearing masks and it's like almost like normal. So the takeaway is there's tons to explore. Uh, I'm sure we could probably spend an entire episode just focusing on one region alone, whether it's oh, Berlin yeah. or Paris and London. Uh, but we'll have some notable mentions at the, at the, at the, at the, before we wrap up the episode. So before further ado, we are jumping to our first main focus. Michael, take it away. What are we focusing yes. first? All right. So, Johnny, it's interesting to it's interesting because uh, we we wanted to figure out how can we cover the most interesting stories kind of going on in Europe right now. And of course, as you said, Europe is huge. There's a lot of interesting stories. So we basically went by which ones most interest us. And there's a region right now uh, of the rising potential Silicon Valleys that is in Switzerland. And it's called the Swiss Crypto Valley. And we're going to go talk about that now. As you can imagine, uh, the Crypto Valley is built around blockchain and cryptocurrency technology. So where is it? Hold on one second. I adjust my microphone, which is probably ruining my audio quality. Wait one sec. Wait one sec. Okay. So we're going to talk about a very particularly interesting region to myself, at least, and that is the Swiss Crypto Valley. So Swiss Crypto Valley, it's in Zug, Switzerland, and it is the home of over, uh, Jai, listen to this one, it's the home of over 842 crypto businesses in a small city of only 30,000 people. So... That's uh, and, and it's growing incredibly fast. So 100 new businesses were founded just last year, adding a thousand new jobs to the to the city of Doug alone. So that's a lot of that's a lot of companies, Johnny, for this for this crypto valley. It's almost like uh, um, it just reminds me of was it 2012. In the area that when we were first were uh, in the Bay Area and just so much startup activity. Mm -hmm. Anyways, it might not be exactly the same, but just reminds me of that. There's just so many new, every day, new startup, new startup, new startup. New oh, yeah. Idea. I mean, speaking but of this, fun, yep, yep. This has a specific focus on crypto. That's the. Yes, yes, it does. And blockchain and crypto. Now, specifically, talking about funding for all these new ideas. Funding, apparently, for the top, this is based on late 2019 data. Funding based on the top 50 of these companies reached $4 billion already. And the total valuation of these 50 top companies is $25.3 billion right now. So what are some of the big companies that have uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of presence or at least uh, a, a headquarters, if not a huge presence in the Crypto Valley? I'll talk about the unicorns. So there's a few unicorns. There's one, two, three, four, five. There we go. Unicorns uh, in the Crypto Valley. Those being Ethereum, Definity, Polkadot, Bitmain, uh, and Libra. And we'll go through some of these individually in terms of what they do and kind of what, uh, what I was about to say and a little bit of their history and a little bit of how they're so big. So the first one, of course, is Ethereum. So what is Ethereum? Ethereum is the second largest cryptocurrency in the world, only behind Bitcoin. Currently trading around 350 USD. So in comparison to Bitcoin, a steel. steel. Um, it was originally released in 2015 by Vitalik uh, Buterlin and Galvin Wood. So 
Ethereum is really the company that kind of kicked things off in this entire area. They were the one that established themselves and they're currently evaluated at $14.4 billion. And that is not just the, the, that's just the valuation of the coin, that's the valuation of the company. So next, the, the next unicorn that we'll talk about worth $2 billion right now in valuation is Divinity. Its president is Dominic Williams. It received funding from Andreessen Horowitz. And what it's trying to do is, Johnny, you'll like this, is trying to make a decentralized blockchain-based cloud computing company to decrease the cost of cloud computing. So basically, it's trying to be the blockchain AWS, if you will, uh, the storage and compute side of AWS, not necessarily all the services. And as I just mentioned before, Dominic, his main stated goal is that he wants to decrease that cost of internet computing so it's not just restricted and limited to only just the Apple's, uh, sorry, the Microsoft's, the Google's, and the Amazon's of the world, or the Snowflake's of the world as well. And of course, pretty smart, right? It decentralized web security. Think about all of the unused cores, unused compute that uh, goes through your computer day to day, even when it's on. Pretty smart idea, I would say. Uh, and of course, the built-in security and the idea that no one owns it, which go into a little bit of why Switzerland produces so many companies later, but that's you can see that's a that's a budding idea that's pretty cool uh next unicorn as we kind of just blaze through these also decentralized web it's a little bit different it was called polka dot it's at 1.2 billion dollar valuation and i'll use their words they facilitate an internet where independent blockchains can exchange information and transactions in a trustless way via the polka dot relay chain all right so what does that mean effectively polka dot made a multi-chain system that allows people to effectively build other chains on top of their system. It's their system is called, ah, I forgot, I forgot what their, their own chain system is called. It starts with an A or S. Anyways, I'll add that to the show notes. But effectively they said, hey, uh, we believe there's gonna be more than one chain in the future. And if you want to have an application, uh, building your own chain from the ground up is just too challenging, too difficult instead, why don't we build basically a chain developer platform, if you will, into, uh, into the world. And that's what we're going to be with Polkadot. So they want to decrease the amount of effort and the barrier of entry to building blockchain-enabled solutions for the world. So <clears throat> that's Polkadot. Next unicorn that's on the list, Bitmain. So again, this one is not founded in Zug. Uh, but this has a large presence in it. This is actually a Chinese company. And this is handling the hardware side of things. So Bitmain was founded in 2013 in Beijing. It's a hardware company that specifically designs ASIC chips specifically for Bitcoin mining. And finally, the last player that's a big unicorn or a unicorn valuation of this, of course, is Libra, the much-hyped Facebook-backed crypto. I'm not actually sure how it's valued at a billion when literally no code nor no coin has been released yet, but okay. Uh, however, it is backed, of course, by the conglomerate of the Libra Confederation, which is Facebook, Lyft, Farfetch'd, Spotify, Uber, Shopify, Andreessen Horowitz, Breakthrough Initiatives, Rabbit Capital, Thrive Capital, Union Square Ventures, and uh, what's called, and a bunch of other communications platforms as well. And they're also facing many regulatory issues in the EU and in the USA. So those are the big unicorn companies. Before we jump into a little bit more about just uh, this Crypto Valley in general. Johnny, 
Have you ever heard of some of these companies and did you know that they were this valuable? To answer your question, no, not really. I mean, I obviously heard of Libra and I'd heard of Ethereum, but I haven't heard of the other ones. So it's really fascinating to see that ecosystem, right? Because you have a mix of the folks that are building on top of it and then the, mm -hmm. the folks that are building like another platform. It, right? makes, like, it makes sense though, right? Given that does, if you go under the idea that blockchain equals computing paradigm, that what do we need around the computing paradigm? And they always say that crypto is like the email of which they built the internet around and crypto is what they're building blockchain. Okay, so crypto is the email, Ethereum, Libra. Then what else did we build the internet? Uh, distributed computing, Definity. Okay, or maybe Definity right. would be the one, but you could see it, yeah. And then, okay, now I wanna build a developer suite on top of that. Okay, Polkadot, kind of. And then we need hardware to support all of this. Uh, and it would be Intel, or it would be NVIDIA in the old days, if you will, now or AMD in the old days, if you will. What is it right now? Or sorry, Intel or Dell in the old days, if you will. What is it? Bitmain, right? You can see it kind of all makes sense in terms of the big companies, or rather, maybe not the players themselves, but the industries that rise out of this. For sure, for sure. But yeah, so... Now here is a question, although we, we wanted to talk about a little bit about how these next Silicon Valleys came to be. So why Zug is a, is a question. Have you ever heard of Zug before? No. Yeah, actually, even before today, have you ever heard no. of Zug? No, never heard of it. So yeah, a little bit about Zug. Like I said before, uh, they're a small town that's about an hour outside of Zurich. There are no direct flights to Zug. Zurich. You have to, Zurich, sorry, Zurich. You have to fly into Zurich uh, and then take about an hour train into Zug. And they have a population of 30,000 people. So why do all of these crypto companies choose Zug? Why do they go into Switzerland specifically? I mean, if you look at it well with Facebook, they could put Libra anywhere. They could center it in Silicon Valley. They can center it in New York, right? They chose to, to put it in Zug, Switzerland. All right, so what... Yeah, right. what created this? What created this crypto valley? A few things, uh, and this is this is where I found the parallels of Silicon Valley. So, Silicon Valley is named such because in the origin of Silicon Valley, we produced chips, silicon chips, really, and we were heavily backed by, or rather, one company really established itself in this entire region and kicked off it being Silicon Valley. And that was Intel. Uh, was Intel was Intel the- Intel was a Fairchild. Okay, well, okay, technically Fairchild was, there's more than one company. Intel is the one that gets all the credit because I think it's the only one left. Yeah, yeah that's true, that's true. But regardless, it's like, regardless, it's like the son and not the, the grandfather. It's survivor, what's it called? It's, it's survivor bias. Yes. But anyways, Intel, it's the one that kicked off uh, really helped kick off and explode silicon manufacturing in the valley. And that became, uh, what's it called? And that became why we're called Silicon Valley, even though silicon manufacturing, as we mentioned before, even I then you read the story, even Intel's thinking of exiting the manufacturing space. Yeah. So now what kicked off Crypto Valley? Okay, well, it's pointed back to one man and one company, Nikola Nikolasen, founder, of a company called Bitcoin Suisse in 2013. He had formerly worked at Credit Suisse. 
And what he did was he moved to Zug to found his company and worked closely with the local government to form the first regulations around how crypto companies would be treated and crypto holdings would be treated from a local government and tax perspective. This paved the way in 2015, sorry, 2015, yes, for the Ethereum Foundation to move itself into Zug because of course, if you think back to the wild west of cryptocurrencies, having a town or an area that actually has true regulation will support you and will say, hey, we know how to handle a crypto company. That's huge. So Ethereum moved itself in and Ethereum was the intel, if you will, in this, uh, in this world where it kind of just blew up and everything built around Ethereum. And other things, of course, that makes it very similar to Silicon Valley or makes it very similar to its growth, very, very generous and very, very company-friendly tax structure. So Zug only charges a 14% corporate tax on all of its corporations, which is incredibly small. And it, like I said, uh, otherwise, otherwise, not only did Zug create regulations for how it handles crypto uh, companies, but Switzerland as a country and the Swiss exchange was the first country that actually created an official set of regulations for initial coin offerings. So no other country actually even has any regulations for their initial coin offerings, not like at least Switzerland has right now. So this is just Switzerland further doubling down on this interest. And we saw this in the United States too, where they were building up Silicon Valley, a lot of favorable, both environmental policies and tax incentives and different things were given to this area by the local government, the state government and the federal government in order to really build up this booming kind of new industry in this area. So that's how Crypto Valley became Crypto Valley. I think that's a, that's a really, really interesting history and really draws a lot of parallels to Silicon Valley. Um, yeah, absolutely fascinating. What's even more fascinating is that it's just one city. It's not even like a region, right? You know, Silicon Valley, everyone says San Francisco, but really, officially, Silicon Valley is, you know, kind of the South Bay, right? It's uh, the southern part uh, of it. And it's several cities. All right. We are going north, Michael, to the north. United Kingdom. Ah, the yes. good old UK. Yes, we are. We are touching all this, the typical uh, uh, areas, the usual, uh, what do you call them? The usual faces. All right. In the UK, there's actually several different areas, some of them even starting with silicon. But I'll start off with the M4 corridor. The M4 corridor is actually an area in the UK that's adjacent to the M4 motorway, which runs from London to South Wales. So there's actually, this is a major high-tech hub, not specific to startups, but Adobe, Amazon, Citrix Systems, Dell, Alcatel, Lucent, Huawei, Lexmark, LG, Microsoft, Novell, Nvidia, O2, Panasonic, SAP and Symantec have, have offices in this corridor. In the eastern end is the English side, and that's home to a large number of technology companies, particularly in the Berkshire, Swindon, Thames Valley area, and that's called England Silicon Valley. Area is also served by like Great Western uh, Mainline, uh, which includes the South Wales Mainline and London Heathrow Airport, which is I, I surmise is part of the. Part of the reason that this area has become such a high-tech high uh, hub, right? Yep, uh, ease of access. is really important. 
exactly. So some of the important cities and towns that are linked by the M4 corridor going from east to west is, of course, London, Slough, Bracknell, Maidenhead, Reading, Newbury, Swindon, Bath, Bristol, Newport, Cardiff, and Swansea. So Reading is home to many IT and financial service, uh, financial service businesses. So the investments has actually been uh, gradually spreading westwards since the 1980s. In mm-hmm. the case of South Wales, it's actually known as industrial heartland of the UK. Uh, the 1980s and 1990s saw a lot of the development, one of them being the Swansea Enterprise uh, Park. Uh, and then uh, Newport, for example, has seen significant growth in the electronic industry since the late 1980s. So tied to that then is we're going further up north to Silicon Glen. This is the ah. nickname for the high tech sector in Scotland. Did they actually uh, which, mix anything with Silicon? Uh, they did. They did. This one actually okay. has manufacturing. All so, right, all right. They actually come about it correctly. Got it. Yeah. So uh, central, this Silicon Glen actually refers to the central belt triangle between Dundee, uh, Inverclyde, and Edinburgh. And it's a term that's actually been used since the 1980s, uh, which was another interesting find. So its origins, the area's origins are in the electronics business with Ferranti establishing a plant in Edinburgh in 1943 and then you know, several other companies, NCR Corporation, Honeywell, Burroughs Corporation following in the late 1940s with IBM opening a manufacturing facility in Greenock in 1953. Mm-hmm. Uh, Makes sense, okay. We, so they come about it properly then in terms of they actually manufactured uh, chips at one point. Yeah, not, not just- What's it called? Uh, we're gatekeeping. That's what we're doing on this podcast. We're gatekeeping our name. Oh, right, Silicon Trail, right, mm-hmm. right. Well, look, they're just coming on board. All these guys are being onboarded for a trail. All right, then we have Silicon Gorge, which is uh, going back uh, south. It's in the region in Southwest England. So that's the Bristol, Swinder, Gloucester area. It's actually ranked fifth of such areas in Europe. And it was named after the Avon Gorge, which is a 1.5 mile long gorge on the river Avon in Bristol, England. Um, Then Silicon Fen, which refers to the region around Cambridge. Uh, it's also known as the Cambridge Cluster. This was actually a pretty fascinating area. So this is a large cluster of high-tech businesses focusing on software, electronics, and biotechnology. Uh, it's called Silicon Fen because it lies at the southern tip of the English Fenland. Um, the other thing that's more recent has been that Cambridge has outstripped London in terms of investments per head in 2019. So comparing 3,361 versus 840. Uh, and 25 cents uh, in pounds. It's a comparison of Cambridge versus uh, London in terms of investments per head. So Cambridge's success in the tech world is that the city's specialism in biotechnology with 46 biotechnology firms in the city. So not quite as high as as Zug, but pretty up there for almost 50 firms to be in a a relatively small city, right? Uh, Cambridge is, I'm sure, a fraction of London. I think this is more largely speaking, uh, the, the deep tech startups, which are companies that develop products and services based on new scientific breakthroughs, whereas the top investment area with 3 billion pounds, followed by AI with 2 billion pounds, followed by delivery with 1.1 billion pounds, and then with biotechnology and blockchain wrapping up the top five. Um, what's interesting about the UK area is that each city has its area of focus. So Cambridge, as I mentioned, is biotechnology, Brighton is augmented reality, Edinburgh with blockchain because it's had a financial services area, and Manchester uh, is, uh, seems to be focusing on delivery. So 
uh, yeah, that was that was one interesting one. And then of course, you know, the mother of all we can't forget is Silicon Roundabout, which is an East London tech city, a cluster of high tech companies located in none other than East London. Quick history about this is that it actually started with a cluster of web businesses uh, that developed in the Old Street Roundabout in 2008. Uh, this was an area which was historically run down compared to the city of London. It was also known as the city fringe. Surprise, surprise. And then 2008, 2009 re recession, it just further suppressed rents in that area. Uh, uh, you know, there's numerous uh, firms that were closed and which made it really affordable for technology startups to, to move into that area. And then also redundancies um, from financial services companies and redundancies is basically people being let go. Uh, you know, such as investment banks, release a local pool of experienced uh, talent, which was interested in entrepreneurship. So that's what really surcharged uh, what Silicon Roundout, uh, Roundabout would come to be. It was supported by both local and national government with the goal to create a cluster comparable to Silicon Valley. Um, some of the larger, obviously, tech companies, Cisco, Facebook, Google, Intel, McKinsey and Company, and Microsoft have invested in this area. Uh, in terms of universities, City, University of London, London Metropolitan University, Imperial College London, Queen, Queen Mary University of London, and University College London are academic partners. And some of the earlier startups uh, were uh, back in 2008 were Doppler, Blast.fm, TweetDeck, and so on. So that is pretty much um, the UK area. What I found fascinating real quick about it was that in Cambridge, you know, uh, obviously supported by Cambridge University, there's this ecosystem of companies uh, and high-tech startups that have, have come about. And it seems to have a lot of the similar ethos that Silicon Valley has, which is, you know, uh, people are not afraid of failure. People are, all right, jumping around different uh, companies because, you know, startups fail and they move on to the next thing, which is a lot that has, which is a, a lot of the spirit that has spurred Silicon Valley, right? So it's, it's interesting to see Cambridge. And then going to London, which is you know the mother of them all over over in the UK, it's 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 uh, it's the same thing, right? We have all of this ecosystem of academic partners, right, that are continuing to to bring out talent to these companies. And then of course you have this external funding and government support. There's this, I think there's this perception in the states that for the most part, if you're doing almost anything with technology, you have to be in the Bay Area, right? Uh, but what's in uh, just to compare and contrast here, right? So here you kind of have your, you're starting to see your focus areas, even within the UK, right? We haven't even, we're not even touching the, the rest of Europe, which we mentioned, right? Is within the UK that, you know, Cambridge and being biotechnology, Brighton being augmented reality, Edinburgh with blockchain and, you know, financial services history, Manchester being in delivery. And of course, I think it seems like London's kind of the be all end all, right? It has all these different technology companies, of course, it has a huge focus on on uh, financial services, but it has a range of, of technology companies in, in, that are based in London. So I, I just think that's really interesting because there hasn't been anything uh, comparable in, in, um, in the States for, uh, for the most part. Well, I would say it's the, the States have moved past the phase of specialization, I would say. Right, right. Because Silicon Valley is no longer just Silicon. That's true. Well, yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Anything else you'd like to say in the UK? No, it's, this is, this is certainly interesting. This is certainly interesting. Uh, but really quickly, I know you also, before we wrap on just Europe uh, in general, 
I know you wanted to give some notable mentions to a few other countries that have interesting tech startup scene going on. Want to go through those real quick? Yes, our notable mentions include Paris. It's uh, really um, Station F, which is the largest startup incubator accelerator in the world. It features over 3,000 workstations, can host over 1,000 startups, and even has office space for some of the like, corporations like Facebook and all those guys. It's situated in a former rail freight depot. It, has, it is a 34,000 square meter uh, facility. And it was formerly opened by President Emmanuel Macron in June. I was about to say that's 34,000 34, meters. That's that's tough for that's tough for me to kind of intuit, Johnny. Can you put that in terms of how many how many football fields so an American can understand it? Oh my God! Square meters to feet. Ah, it's, it's six American football fields. Got it. That's huge. That's huge. Got it. Yes. I like how, do you like how weird it is that American football fields is a unit of measure for Americans? Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah, we have to cater to everybody. We have to cater to everybody. All right. So back to Paris is uh, Station F is really the culmination of some of the policies that President Macron has been putting in place ever since he came uh, into power, which is reducing the red tape, uh, becoming being more favorable to startups, and creating an ecosystem and space that would allow startups to thrive. And Station F is kind of that culmination of that, right? Where it's like, here's this big facility that we've revamped for you guys. So it's, it'll be interesting to see what continues to come out from that uh, uh, in the next coming years. It's about three years old right now. Uh, Barcelona, uh, which hosts the Mobile World Congress. That is enough to say, hey, it, it, that's it. Just, it. It hosts the annual mobile conference. Berlin, uh, Berlin, you know, it has a great ecosystem of accelerators, incubators, and mentors. Uh, real quick, when I was doing research, I didn't necessarily add it because it was in a Financial Times article I couldn't get access to, but I saw the headline, which is that Paris has, I think in the past year or so, overtaken Berlin in terms of fundraising uh, for startups, if I, uh, if I remember correctly. So, up till now, Berlin has been one of the leaders in, in Europe, right? It's been helped by lower cost of living. Um, it, it's called Silicon Alley, even has a website. It's Alley with uh, two E's, A-L-L-E-E. So siliconalley.com, we'll have that in show notes. Uh, just another great place that I think we should spend definitely a, an episode exploring. The other one is Amsterdam. Amsterdam was ranked second best European city for startups by the European Digital City Index back in 2015. I know there's several companies uh, that are based in Amsterdam or, you know, uh, even U.S.-based companies that open offices in Europe. Uh, you know, when I was uh, three years ago, 2017, when I was back in Europe and looking for a job in Europe, I noticed a lot of companies have uh, a presence in Amsterdam, right? So that's one of the places. The other one that I didn't actually list out here, but just wanted to mention is Dublin. Dublin has become, you know, maybe for tax purposes, uh, the, the, it's notable for being the headquarters for a lot of US-based companies and serving as a headquarters, the European headquarters for a lot of them, right? And so that has really... Yes. So, that, yeah, so that is obviously... They, I think Apple's been there in Cork, I think right outside Dublin, if I remember, um, since the early 1990s. And so that has obviously created an ecosystem of 
you know, uh, talent and uh, technologists there. Of course, quick access to the airport uh, in Dublin, which I've flown through, uh, of, of course helps. So kind of wrapping up here, um, I see a couple themes that I like to address. I think we touched upon it, but some of the factors that seem to contribute to a place becoming, or not just a specific place, but a, a region becoming, uh, you know, a Silicon something or technology hub, as we should say, is, you know, one ease of transportation, ease of access to transportation, uh, favorable government policies, uh, potentially, I, I mean, it helps, it's not always seems to be the requirement, but uh, access to uh, research facility, university, and of course, investments, right? So either private companies are coming in and, as, you know, we, we started this podcast talking about uh, these companies have become their own VCs, if you will. And what are you seeing here are exactly those large tech companies uh, coming in and providing the inv necessary investment. So it's not so much VCs coming in and doing it. It's also corporations coming in and doing that, right? Buying companies, uh, Google buying DeepMind, for example, uh, as well. So continuing to foster the, the ecosystem, if you will. What do we think about tech in Europe right now? I think walking in to Europe, we, we were, especially coming out of Asia, we were a bit down on Europe. We're a bit thinking it's okay, it's time has passed. Looking into kind of the large developments that's now spurring up in Europe, has that thought changed? Oh yeah, I mean, uh, I've kind of followed some of the startups there, like, you know, for example, HelloFresh that we've talked about before. Um, you know, we talked about Spotify before, King, a few others as well. So no, I, I, I think Europe is having, was having its moment in 2019. We'll see how 2020 goes, obviously. But I think as long as the fundamentals are there, and I don't think fundamentals have really changed, right? A lot of the companies that were successful before this pandemic, you know, whether it's a Spotify, the, the, the delivery, the transportation, those companies are the ones that have, you know, whose time has been sped up five to 10 years, right? In terms of uh, the marketplace, uh, their, their position in the marketplace and all that. So although Europe has quickly gone back to being normal, relatively, um, I don't, I think it's still growing. I'm, it's pretty exciting to see all the different ecosystems are there. I think we should definitely spend some uh, episodes in the future exploring some of these specific hubs, like we mentioned Berlin, Paris, London, maybe some of these up and coming ones as well uh, to see what is in these different spaces. But yeah, there's a lot of activity. I think for me, some of the, big, the biggest tailwind right now for Europe is how well it's handling the pandemic and how quickly it's opening its economy back up. Even Italy, which was struck so bad by the, by the pandemic. I think the biggest headwind is general nationalism and things like Brexit and seeing what that will do to the burgeoning, the reburgeoning or the rebirth, if you will, of the startup economy. Yeah. Yeah. But yes. All right, Johnny, we're next on this world tour. We are going south. We're going south. The country. Oh, oh sorry. Sorry. The, the continent of Africa. Yes. All righty then. So, we are, yeah, we're looking forward to going to, we're going, looking forward to going and exploring the continent of Africa next, but that'll be next week. For now, you've been listening to another episode of the Silicon Trail. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful week.